grateful for our team, as I am every Sunday, who led us in worship this morning, and I'm grateful for you guys just for engaging in that. And uh, for me personally, that was a challenging, powerful, encouraging time listening to you sing with me and remind me of the hope that we have. Um, And what we've already sung in that last song is kind of what this whole book of Revelation is about, right? Um, Ultimately, it's about hope and the promising insurance of that hymn of heaven. So thanks to our team, as always, who does a great job. Thanks to uh, the volunteerism of their hearts to come and serve you guys. And thanks to all of you for singing. And, uh, you know, it's a unique thing in a church. You, don't go, you ain't going to go to your job tomorrow morning. Well, maybe you will. Most of you won't go to your job tomorrow morning and bust into a song, right? You're not going to gather your construction crew together and say, let's begin by all singing together, right? It's a, for, if you're new to church, it's a very, uh, it, you, we don't do this a lot of places in culture, right? And so I know that for some people who this is a newer experience church, we come in and They're like, why are we singing? I don't want to sing. But man, there is beauty and meaning and significance to when we sing together. And I know for a lot of you who've been in church for decades, you don't sing a peep. You don't. I don't know why. I can't figure it out. I have the worst voice on the planet. I promise you. I can prove it to you right now. But uh, I kind of sing. And so uh, just great value and worth in doing that. And it's part of what, as a body, we do to encourage one another. What we're striving to do here at Calvary Church, as many of you know, is to together build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. Build a body of disciples who personally and collectively reach and other people, uh, reach and impact other people with God's love and God's truth. And we have an amazing opportunity to do that for the next month to, as a body, collectively try to impact and serve and show love to other people in our community. Um, Man, we have the opportunity to partner with a bunch of different ministries and partnerships, and one of those we partner with is an organization called Hopeline. And all of our stories are different, but <clears throat> for many people in their story, there's a pregnancy that wasn't planned, that wasn't expected, that is a game changer for them, and is for the folks, the, the parents or the mom or whatever that situation is involved, look ahead, they're like, man, I don't, I don't know if I will be able to keep this baby. There's going to be impact. There's going to be change. There's going to be um, hardships. And so many moms wrestle with the decision of what do I do with this child? And there's a lot of moms who realize that despite the way it's going to change their life and the burden that it will place on them, they're going to keep their baby and they're willing to suffer um, the challenges that come along with that when they weren't expecting. And so there's this organization called Hopeline that comes alongside of them And when ladies are in that moment deciding those things and dads are in those moments, try to give counsel, try to give more than just counsel, but resources and help so that we don't just try to tell people what to do and then say, so good luck doing it on your own. And so Hopeline comes along moms who have decided to keep their baby and and try to walk the path with them to some degree. And we have a great opportunity as as a body that partners with them to be involved in that story. And so one thing that is a challenge Uh, for all sorts of families, right, particularly those whose income, um, you know, they're not pulling in half a million dollars a year, are diapers. Diapers and formula are crazy expensive. And so diapers, something that some of us take for granted for some people, man, having to get those things. And babies go through a lot of diapers. I think there's something biologically wrong with them. You should not have that many issues every day that you need all those new diapers. Uh, But babies do. And so moms... And dads have to buy diapers. And so we have an opportunity to try to support some families in our community who are like, man, I'm going to keep my baby. And I'm going to weather what comes with that challenge. So we have an opportunity to help support those moms and those dads. And we're going to do that for the next month, starting today, for three or four weeks. We're going to ask you and invite you that uh, we'd love for you to bring in some diapers. And there's a bin in the lobby. And bring in some diapers, uh, drop them in the bin, and then in about a month from now, we're going to have the opportunity to hand us off to Hopeline, and they'll distribute it to the different folks in need. And it really is an amazing, tangible way to show God's love to people who need it. And in terms of showing God's love, if statistics are correct, then there are a significant number of us in this room who the choice of how to navigate an unplanned pregnancy is part of your story. If statistics are correct, there are a 
noticeable number of us who we, this isn't just something we hear about when we talk about how to help people. This is something you've weathered. And I don't know the choice that you've made. I don't know if you're a guy and uh, you got a person pregnant and you had to decide what to do or if you were the lady who got pregnant and had to decide. And I don't know what decision you made, but I know that we need to be aware of this and sensitive to this. And whenever we talk about it, understand that there's a significant number of evangelical Christians who are still weathering and processing through uh, the choices that they made. And if there's anything that we can do as a church, uh, Hopeline provides counseling for people who decades ago decided to abort their child, who are just now processing through it. If we can provide counseling or help or support to you, we would love to do that as well. Um, <clears throat> because it is part of some of our stories. And some of us uh, are processing it perhaps even today. And so we want to provide that help for you as well, all right? So great opportunity for us to help people who are in real time going through it. I encourage you to do that and just want you to know we're here to help you and walk with you if that is part of your story with some professional counseling and help. And, and you can reach out to any of our pastoral team and we'll help walk that process with you, all right? So thanks for being here today and I'm excited about what God has. And so we're going to jump into his word and I'm going to pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for the amazing truth of that last song and that the hope that we have that one day we're going to see you face to face. And uh, Father, I just pray that as we continue through this series that that reality for those of us who are believers in you, um, man, will just be strong. And there's so many things that offer false hope and so many things that steal our hope. And it is so easy to get lost in what we can see instead of clinging to all the time what we cannot see, which is faith in you. And so, uh, Father, we need the Spirit to help remind us of the work of Jesus and the confidence that we have because of what he's done. And so I pray uh, that you will help us and continue to be kind to us and inflame our hope towards you and towards what's to come. Help us as we walk into uh, another part of Revelation, Father. Uh, you've, you've preserved this for us because you want us to know it. And so we're going to dive into it, and I pray that truth will be spoken and if anything that I say is not accurate nor true, then we'll be quickly corrected, and I'm grateful for this time and this opportunity. And we pray this in the name of our King, who is going to come again. Amen. <clears throat> well, if you've got a Bible, if you've got a device, you can fumble around for it, because we are in... Guess what book we're in? Yes! The book of Revelation. I will be 72 years old up here talking about, ah, we're in the book of Revelation, okay? And um, we're continuing our study in this book this morning. And before we get into the meat of the text, I think it's just kind of helpful to think about this is a little bit of an academic study, um, and, but, but why are we studying this? Why are we carving out months and months, almost a full year to walk through this? What, why study this book and what are some benefits if you join along with us either online or in person of this book? Um, well, well, here's a few thoughts on why we're doing this and the benefits we're doing it. Like I said when I kicked it off, man, this, God has sovereignly inspired every single word in the Bible, and he has preserved for us what he wants us to know. And all of Scripture is profitable for reproof and for teaching and for conviction and for challenge, including the book of Revelation. And so we have an opportunity together as a body to study a book of the Bible that many times Christians don't study and people don't study. And you and I have an opportunity through this study, right, to expand our understanding and our knowledge of God's Word. The first reason we're doing this is because there's a book of the Bible that a lot of people either go crazy about or they don't even talk about. And we want to know the full breadth of Scripture and God's Word, and so we can study that one of the huge reasons, and we focused on this the fall that we're studying it, is it gives some of the most practical insights into what God wants for local churches. When we were in our study on the seven churches, there are challenges, there are exhortations, there are clear directions about what bodies of believers should be about and what they should not be about. And together, we kind of walked through that, and many of our times together was this mirror that we could hold up to Calvary Church and say, okay, Calvary, how are we doing, right? How are we lining up to what God wants for us? Revelation, another benefit of studying it, it provides a unique insight into the attributes and the character of God. 
if you're a Christian, you want to know, man, everything, what, I want to know as much as I can about who God is and about the triune God and the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And there are passages in Revelation that are not found anywhere else that provide insights into the attributes and the character of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. And this book gives us this amazing opportunity to learn more about the triune God. We've just sung it, but another huge benefit to studying the book of Revelation and why we're taking a year to do this, um, approximately, is hope. Hope. All of us want hope. None of us want to be hopeless. And the book of Revelation, in unique ways not found in other scripture, gives you what the Christian hope is. It gives you a foundation when the storms of life buffet you and you wonder what's going to happen, what's in store, how's the story going to end. This is a book of hope. And I know that there's a lot of people in our church and in our community who, man, feel a little bit hopeless. And so we have an opportunity as a body to think about what is hope, what is in store, what can we look forward to. And the last reason, a benefit of studying the book of Revelation, is it as we walk this study, it can keep you from being a weirdo. I can't keep you from being a weirdo in a lot of things in your life, right? You, some of you are doing a very good job of that on your own. But I can try very, very hard to keep you from being a weirdo theologically. And when you get to the book of Revelation, good grief, there's a lot of weirdos out there when they talk about it, okay? You know, like they walk through the grocery store and the person who checked them out is the Antichrist because like the number ended with 66 cents and six times they blinked their eyes and ah! People are crazy, and we do not want to be crazy people. And so this will keep us uh, from being wackos when it comes to the book of Revelation, all right? So some benefits to this series, and more than just charts and diagrams, but some really encouraging and important things. And what we've said is when we walk through this series, what we've gone once we've gotten into about chapter 6 is what perspective are we taking of the book of Revelation? Y'all come, yes! That's so good. There's nothing worse than someone who wants to teach content, asks this question, and people are like, yes, what we're taking is this historist approach. So what we're saying is when we, we could be wrong, but we have to pick some approach. When we get to about chapter uh, five-ish of Revelation, we're saying that now we're starting to talk about things that are yet to come, things that are in the future. And last week, we began a discussion on this big future topic that is intimidating for some people. Some of us have never known about it. Others of us have thought way too much about it. But it's this topic of the tribulation. When we entered into our text in Revelation 6.1 last week, we opened up and we read this verse. Now, when I, wa I watched when the Lamb, Revelation 6.1, opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals. And what we've said is that as we take our yet-to-come perspective and journey, that this opening of the seven seals, when Jesus opens up a seal, that is, in biblical prophecy, under the perspective we're taking, the beginning of this moment in biblical history and future human history known as the tribulation, the tribulation. And last week, in case you weren't here, in case you forgot, here's just kind of some things that we pulled from different verses about what this tribulation period is. Again, this is review, but it's this yet-to-be-experienced moment in human and biblical history. If you want to read ahead about it, it is in Revelations, uh, Revelation, Revelation chapter 6 through 18, uh, deal with the tribulation, and other passages deal with it. Matthew 24 deals with it, Daniel 9 deals with it. A purpose of the tribulation is to deal with sin and wickedness in the world. This story is about Jesus to come to reclaim the earth and to make it the way it should be. But like we talked about with my starter and my engine that messed up, in order to fix things and get them the way they should be, you sometimes need to remove the things that are broken and that are not the way they should be. And so part of this tribulation is to finally deal with fully sin and wickedness in the world and one important thing that we talked about is the period when God's wrath is poured out on the world. And we'll explain why that's important in a minute. And unique and elevated suffering occurs during the tribulation. And then we talked about the elephant in the room. 
The elephant in the room that some of you saw, the elephant in the room that none of you saw, but the elephant in the room whenever we start talking about the tribulation is this question. Okay, I'm a Christian. That sounds really, really bad. Am I going to be around when that happens? That was the elephant in the room. And to help answer that question, we looked at a verse. We threw lots of paper on the stage. That was so cathartic. I don't know if you were here, but... Monday for two and a half hours, I was vacuuming, and it was amazing. Not really. But here's what we talked about. Okay, the the elephant in the room is, are we going to be here for that as Christians? And we want to try to know what we can know about that answer. And there was a verse that we looked at and spent the majority of our time on last week, Revelation 3.10. And again, this is all review. We're about to jump into new. But this is a verse that helps us begin to answer that question. Because you've kept my word, God's talking to Christians, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming in the whole world. Hour of trials of tribulation, keep you from. We spent the bulk of our time last week talking about this phrase, keep you from. And again, we, we threw paper on blocks and we said, okay, there, that, that phrase could be one of two things. It is a promise from God that you are never, ever going to experience my wrath, But God could do that by removing us from the earth when the wrath is going to come or shielding us on the earth when that wrath comes. Two different perspectives we said we spent time on. God could, again, we're never going to experience God's wrath. God might protect us from the wrath by whoop us out of the earth when it happens. before, whenever God's wrath comes. Or it could be particularly, specially protecting us right where we are in the moment when that comes. Um, And so today we're going to kind of, we didn't get to really press into it because we threw this word out a little bit last week called the rapture, the rapture. And so we're going to kind of press in a little more about this theory that God protects us from his wrath by removing us from it. And here's what we're going to think about today. Here's the issue for our time together. If Revelation 3.10 that idea that I will keep you from, if that means that Christians will be removed from the earth, raptured from the earth during the tribulation to escape God's wrath, is that idea supported anywhere else in the Bible? We want to make sure that our theories, that our ideas, are actually ideas that are supported in Scripture. We can draw all the boxes and flowcharts we want, but if there's no Bible to support that, well, that's not what we want to do. So we're going to think about this idea for our time together. If Revelation 3.10 supports the idea that Christians were removed from the earth during the tribulation to escape God's wrath, raptured, right? If that's the thought, is that actually supported in Scripture? But before we get to that, like I said last week, I can't tell you one way or the other with certainty because I don't think the text does. And so at the end of the day, what people have to do is to make a judgment call. And a lot of times people make judgment calls based on what they want it to be. Because people are like, I don't want to be here. So if I have an option of being here or not being here, I'll take door number two. But, But here's the question that I think is worth us thinking about before we jump too further into this is, No matter what God's plan is on how he's going to keep us from his wrath, are you willing to trust him? Are you willing to trust him? And the question today that many Christians around the world face is, if God is asking me to suffer and to go through suffering, am I willing to? To trust Jesus and do it. You and I, you, don't, you didn't have to ask that question when you came here in your car this morning. But like we've talked about a lot, there are a lot of Christians who went somewhere this morning to gather with other Christians, and they are risking hardship, persecution, really bad things. And every morning they have to get up and they have to ask themselves, am I willing to still obediently trust Jesus even when trusting Jesus means I might suffer? And the question is, I don't want to suffer. I don't. I do as much as I possibly can in my life to shield myself from suffering, which is a little bit of an illusion to think that I can control any of that, but I I don't want to suffer. But 
in my story if what Jesus asked me to do is to suffer in obedience for him. At some point, I got to ask myself, am I willing to do that? Am I willing to do that? And the question when we think about this and we study what's to come and we don't know all of the answers, there is the possibility, I don't know, but there is the possibility that as Christians, we're going to have to face some really, really tough things that will not be pleasant. And I think a problem for us in the United States in Christianity is many times we sell Christianity as a magic decoder ring to make you not have to have a hard life. We sell books with those titles called How to Have Your Best Life Now. What does that imply? That implies that Jesus is a magic wand to keep you from suffering. Many times when we present Jesus to people, we say, if you don't want to suffer anymore or have hardship in your life, trust in Jesus. Well, that sounds pretty, but that's bunk. Many times what we've done is we've, we've marketed Jesus to Christ, people in America as like, hey, have a good 401k, that'll secure you. Get some great health care, that'll secure you from hard times. And trust in Jesus because he's the magic formula to keep you from suffering. That's just not what the Bible says. And so what we don't have to face a lot in our normal lives is are we willing to trust Jesus even if it means we suffer? And when we come to this, I don't want to experience what we're going to start talking about in the next week and all the next chapters. I don't. I, I don't. I want to be in heaven. I want to be with Jesus and my forerunner off-roading, drinking amazing coffee, okay? But if that is the plan and if that is what Jesus says is, hey, this is the path you're going to walk, am I going to be willing to do that? And are you going to be willing to do that? And even in our lives, when it's not the book of Revelation, but even maybe we came to Jesus because we wanted our best life now. And Jesus says to you, buddy, I'm going to give you your best life one day, but your best life is not going to be now. Because the path and the story that I have for you involves hardship on this earth. And I'm not talking about the tribulation. I'm just talking about life. I'm talking about bills. I'm talking about kids who don't do what they want you to do. I'm talking about death. I'm talking about overdoses. I'm talking about addictions. It is hard. And for some of us, if Jesus says, this is the story that I'm offering in your life, I'm asking you to walk through some hard times, are we willing to trust him and do that? We would be foolish not to at least think about that, because I'm telling you, I think when sometimes people suffer, that shows where their faith is. And that shows like, nope, I didn't sign up for this, this wasn't in the contract, I wanted my best life now, so I'm gone. Or people are like, Jesus, where else am I going to go? I have nowhere else to go in this moment of suffering and hardship, so I'm going to cling more closely to you. I'm not going to be able to answer this question 100%. Now, I could have, I could have tricked you, and some of you have heard studies, and what some pastors and teachers do, they don't tell you that it's not clear. They give you a diagram, and they say, this is how it is. <clears throat> they are lying to you. That is how they think it is, but they are not God. Okay, so I don't know how this is going to happen, but if it involves suffering, are we going to trust Jesus in that? So let's now press back into if, in fact, some people say, okay, well, I think Revelation 3.10, that God is going to protect us from the wrath by removing us from the wrath to come. Okay, is that removing us from the earth, whoop, when that wrath comes, is that valid? Is that supported by Scripture? This is what we're going to talk about. So before we think about what we don't know and what is not clear, let's let, we're going to walk a little foundation. We're going to step on a little bridge across the river, and we're going to lay some planks with what we do know as we think about what may or may not be. All right. So first thing we know from last week, and we've got to uh, come back to this place, is I've already said it three times because it's important. No matter what God does, the first principle is this. Christians will never experience the wrath of God during the tribulation. Scripture, Christians will never experience the wrath of God during the tribulation. Next thing that we know, we're going to jump ahead a little bit in the story. I'm going to tell you a little bit. I'm going to give a spoiler alert to how the story ends. Revelation 19, okay? Revelation 19 says these words Um, in verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And then we need to see another description of who this rider is in verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. In Revelation 19, John is seeing this vision of Jesus, the King of kings, Lord of lords. And what the rest of the chapter describes is this is a moment when Jesus comes back to earth again. Jesus is descending from the sky. Jesus is coming back. And what the rest of Revelation 19 describes, when Jesus touches feet on the earth, there's this battle that takes place. And then after that battle, Jesus establishes a kingdom under the view that we're taking. Jesus, in Revelation 19, at the end of the story, comes back, right? I saw heaven open. Behold a white horse. He's descending down. And he gets to earth. There's a battle. And then there is his kingdom that he establishes on earth. What's being described in this text in 19 is when Jesus comes back to earth a second time. What the text is telling us, Revelation 19, the king is coming back again. He came once as a baby. He grew up. He was murdered. He was resurrected. He ascended up to heaven. And he is the king. And that king is going to return to earth a second time. That promise of Jesus coming back that we see in Revelation 19, we see in a ton of other verses. Acts chapter 1 describes, I think in verse 11, Jesus ascends up to heaven. And then look what happens. This angel came and the disciples are standing there like, whoa. They're kind of just standing, right? Taking some selfies. They don't really know what to do. And this angel comes and says, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will do what? will come in the same way as you saw him going to heaven. In other words, Jesus was on the earth. Jesus went up. Oh, I should have one of those things that pulls me up to the roof. (laughs) And then when I'm talking about Jesus' second coming, I can swing over the crowd like Pink or Michael Jackson or Shania, and it'll be amazing, but I'm not going to do that, okay? So Jesus goes up, whoop. And what the angel's saying is, you saw him go up, one day he's going to come back down, feet back on the earth. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says this, immediately after the tribulation, just sticky note that, okay? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, talking about the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will, what? Let's just read it. They, read it with me. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. I would be the worst responsive reader. I'm like five, five miles per hour ahead of you guys, right? They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and with great glory. It doesn't stop there. It keeps going. Mark 13, it's repetitive, but we see it. In those days after the tribulation, jumping down, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and with great glory. Luke, every biographer records this, says this, there will be signs in the moon and on the earth, uh, people fainting with fear about what is coming in the world, and then they will will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and with great glory, right? And 1 Thessalonians tells us this, to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We are to wait for when he comes back a second time. Throughout Scripture is this promise, this point, that Jesus is coming back a second time. Jesus will physically return to earth. Here's this, that's the second observation. Jesus will physically return to earth a second time. And those verses um, suggest something else. We've already read it, but let, let's just pull this summary up. All the tribes of the earth will what? See. And they will what? And fainting with fear, fainting with fear, and then they will what? Okay, what does that say about what one thing about Jesus is coming back? Why do you think they keep saying people will see it? Yes! Because people will see it. I'm not tricking you, right? People will see it. 
It will be visible. The third observation of what we know. We know that a Christian will never experience God's wrath during the tribulation. We know that Jesus is physically coming to earth a second time. We know from the text that when Jesus comes, his second coming will be visible. And we know something else about the timing of his second return. Okay? Because the text tells us. Now, Revelation 6 through 18 deal with the tribulation. Revelation 19 deals with Jesus' second coming. Chronologically, in the book of Revelation, when is Jesus' second coming in relation to the tribulation? Is it before it or is it after it? Okay. Revelation 8, 6 through 18, deal with the tribulation. Chronologically, 18 is before 19. 19 comes, and 19 describes Jesus' second coming. We've already kind of captured this in Matthew 24 uh, because we saw that it said, um, after the, right, immediately after the tribulation is how Matthew 24 begins. I'm just going to read it to you because I think the slide is gone. And I can find Matthew quick a whole lot easier than I can find, like, Lamentations quickly. <clears throat> Matthew 24, 29 through 30 says this. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, da 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 and then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and all the tribes will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming after, right, coming the days. So here's the... From Scripture itself, and if you remember all the Gospels talked about tribulation, they see Jesus. Tribulation, they see Jesus. Here's the fourth point, that under a futurist view, Jesus' return to earth will be after the tribulation. I'm not up here today to try to convince you of a flowchart. I'm just up here saying, let's walk through what the text says and see what develops from that. So, under a futurist view... Under the chronology that the scripture lays out, Jesus' return to earth will be after the tribulation. And so, we do have the first, well, not really. We have a diagram. Here is what we've seen from the text so far. Now, again, we're taking one perspective. There are other Christians on three or lots of different lanes who will be like, dude, your whole uh, futurist perspective is wrong. So we could even be wrong in our futurist perspective. But there's the tribulation in Revelation 6 through 18. Then Revelation describes Jesus' return to earth. Boom! He comes back. And then in Revelation 20 and onwards, there's a lot of amazing things right here that we're going to get to sometime in August or September. Um, but <clears throat> here's what you guys are asking. Peter! I know you're asking this. We are so glad that we can see your amazing graphic art prowess. We are so glad that you know how to draw lines and arrows and you read us amazing things out of the Gospels. And that. But Peter, you started by saying, does Revelation chapter 3 verse 10 suggest that Jesus protects us from the wrath by removing us from the earth, rapturing us, before the tribulation comes, what does any of what you've told us so far have to do with that? That is a good question, right? But we're laying the foundation. But here's kind of what it has to do with that. That there are a, a significant number of people, there is a perspective, and just interestingly, this perspective uh, developed not soon after Jesus, but sometime in the mid-1800s, that Jesus returned to earth, it's actually two parts. It's like season one and season two. It's like Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, okay? <clears throat> Some people say that Jesus' return to earth is actually not a one, but it is a two-stage process. And what they will say is that part one is, and don't worry, we'll have a chart for you in a little bit to show you this. They will say that part one is actually Jesus comes down before God's wrath starts to happen during the tribulation, because there's a lot of people who disagree about when exactly that happens, okay? So some people say that maybe here or maybe here, Jesus comes down kind of secretly, 
and he raptures Christians up to be with him. Part one of a two-part series. And part two is this. All the things we've talked about that this. They say that Jesus is coming not one his, his second return is not just a one-time deal. His second return is actually in two stages. Stage one, he comes partially down, and then stage two. And that is where we come up with this idea of the rapture, right? The idea is that when Jesus, that's where some people come up when Jesus comes down here, there's this rapture up, they all go to heaven, and then they come back again a second time. And, a lot, and that's a very commonly held idea by a lot of Christians. The question is this, though. Is that just an idea somebody came up with to make up a flowchart, or is there scripture that actually supports that? Well, the best text that supports that is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And the context of this, and if you've, some of you have heard me say this at, at memorial services, is there was a little church in the city of Thessalonica who had some, apparently, some, man, great Christian friends of theirs who died. And these people in the church were sad about the passing of their, their Christian friends, and they're trying to process <clears throat> how do we grieve, how do we have hope, what do we do? And that was what was the catalyst for Paul writing these words. And he wrote these words where he says this, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And then this is the part that some people think suggests this two-stage thing. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that those who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage to each other with his words. And so people look at this and say, whoa, there's words in here about we will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord. And from that, they kind of come up with a flow chart that we've already talked about to try to link things with Revelation 3.10 where they say, so this verse that we just read describes the process of when God removes Christians from the earth before the wrath of the tribulation to protect them from the earth by the rapture. And so what people will say and argue is based on this. Here's phase one, that Jesus is in the blue. I didn't put any red on here because I thought, that's, we don't need red right now. Jesus comes halfway down. These people are caught up. These are Christians, by the way. We're caught up with Jesus to meet Jesus in the sky. And then, right, what this, what the proponents of this verse say is then we all go, Jesus comes halfway down, we'll meet him there, gets, then Jesus turns around and we go back with him. And for some period of time, while all this bad stuff is happening on earth, Christians are in heaven in the presence of Jesus. And then in that Revelation 19, coming back to earth, that is, we all come back to earth with Jesus. And so this is the diagram based on some people's view of Revelation 3.10 and 1 Thessalonians that describes how Jesus keeps them from the tribulation by removing them from the tribulation under this thing called the rapture. Has anybody ever seen a diagram like this before? No. That's because it is better than any diagram that's ever written before. Has anybody ever read Left Behind? Then you have read this diagram. Because on page three of Left Behind, there is a pilot named Rayford, who is, I think, having uh, an inappropriate friendship with a flight attendant whose name is Hattie. And on page three to four, you, if you've read that book, have read these words, the senior flight attendant pulled him into the galleyway. This is Hattie pulls Rayford, the pilot, into the galleyway. But there was no passion in her touch. Her fingers felt like talons on his forearm. Okay, whatever. That's really poorly written. <laughs> but 
I mean, okay, right? And her body shuddered in the darkness. Hattie, she pressed him back against the cooking apartments, her face close to his. Had she not been clearly terrified, he might have enjoyed this and returned her embrace. Her knees buckled as she tried to speak, and her voice came in a whiny squeal. They're on a plane, by the way. And the whiny squeal, her voice says, people are missing. She managed in a whisper, burying her head in his chest. He took her shoulders and tried to push her back, but she fought to stay close. What do you miss? She was sobbing now, her body out of control. A whole bunch of people just gone. Hattie, this is a big plane. They've wandered to the labs, or she pulled his head down so she could speak plainly and directly into his ear. Despite her weeping, she was plainly fighting to make herself understood. I've been everywhere. I'm telling you, dozens of people are missing. Hattie, it's still dark. We'll find them. I'm not crazy. See for yourself. All over the plane, people have disappeared. It's a joke. They're hiding, trying to. Ray, their socks, their shoes, their clothes, everything was left behind. <laughs> that now concludes my dramatic reading of Left Behind. Thank you. You can leave some tips on the way out. It'll be fine. That is this. That is all these people on the plane. They're all Christians. Ain't nobody sees Jesus. Jesus secretly comes halfway down and all of a sudden, whoop, they're not sitting in seat 29C anymore with a bag of adequate peanuts. They're gone because Jesus has raptured them. You may not have seen these charts before, but I think a lot of you had, which is cool. But a lot of people have read Left Behind, and if you have, you have read this. This week, <clears throat> I was on social media, and for some unknown reason, it has to be the sovereignty of God, I came across something. This is what I saw this week. The post Rapture Journal. <laughs> and you can't see it, but I think like up here somewhere, the date is some 666 and is made out of Tribulation City, all right? Multitudes missing. Nations disappear. Nations throughout the world alarmed with the Mrs. Tear and disappearance of people from all the earth. Blah, 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 right? Some, um, some paper that somebody, obviously it's not a true one, that somebody took great time to try to capture... What will be going on after this rapture happens? But, can you flip back to 1 Thessalonians 4, text real, the text real quick, 1 Thessalonians 4. The question is this. Okay, that's cool. The flow chart, the books, the newspaper, I get it. But does this text itself that is looked at for that big text actually support the flow charts and the diagrams and this idea of a two-stage appearance? Well, you know, you see phrases here that says, um, keep going, can you go one more? <clears throat> one more. Yes! One more. <laughs> this is why I should just use my Bible. This is why you should use an actual Bible, because you wouldn't be looking at this like me like a moron right now. All right. Well, it says, like, well, Peter, we see the word caught up in the clouds, and we see that we will meet the Lord. And some of you, on plain reading, it's like, well, if we meet the Lord, then yeah, he pulls us up there, and then we must go to heaven, and that it all seems to make place. But this phrase actually has a fascinating meaning, both culturally and biblically, which seems to suggest something else. There is a different nuance that's suggested. In that culture, if, when, somebody famous in the Roman culture, in the culture of this day in which it was written, when a victorious, victorious general came to town, when an army, conquering army came to home, when a diplomat, when an emperor, when there's somebody really important who is here, who is going over there to visit... Okay, what this word meet would mean would be uh, people here would come out to meet the person who was coming in town. They would welcome him, and then they say, okay, bro, we're going to escort you back into town. We're going to walk with you. When in that culture, an army was returning home to their families after being victorious, or an emperor was coming into town, or a famous diplomat, or a famous leader, or a famous somebody. And if I am that person, and that wall is the town to which I'm going, 
people from that town will come out and somewhere along the way, halfway, they will meet me. But those people never then turned that way and went with that leader back to the battlefield where he came from. Those people in that culture, they would meet the person with the purpose, with the intent of celebrating them coming to where their final destination is, almost like a parade. It's like a ticker tape parade. When the Yankees win the World Series and they've played in Boston and they're coming in New York to celebrate, the New Yorkers don't meet the people on Fifth Avenue, the Yankees, and then return back to Boston, right? They welcome them in the destination to which they're coming, And culturally, that's what that phrase meat conveys. Now, maybe it means something different biblically, but it doesn't. This phrase is used, this Greek word is used two other times in the Bible. One time by Jesus in Matthew 25, 16. And this is what it says. It's a parable, but it says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. It talks about being prepared, but it talks about that there is a bridegroom who is going to that town to get married. He's walking this way. And there are these bridesmaids, right, these ladies who are here, that what they're doing is they're preparing themselves so that when old boy starts to come close to town, they run out here and they're like, oh, we're so excited for you. She's going to look beautiful. It's your big day. Come on, let's walk with you towards the town where you're going so that you can now get married. In that story, when the bridegrooms, when the, the bridesmaids met the bridegroom, the nuance, the intention, what Jesus, Jesus was not saying, then they were all going to turn around and go back where the bridegroom had just come from. They're there to walk him into town. Well, that's a parable. It could be, okay, but but there's a place where Paul uses this exact term. In Acts 28, Paul has been on a travel. I am Paul. That wall is Rome, okay? Do you see Rome over there? If you've ever been to Rome, imagine all the tourist traps of Rome on that wall. Paul, some of you actually looked over there like you were going to see it. (laughs) Good. Paul is coming to Rome. And it says this, kind of a summary statement. And there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. Paul's kind of big picture saying, we're on our way to Rome. We're heading into Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, when these Roman Christians heard that Paul was getting close, they're like, bro, Paul's coming to town. Paul's coming to town. Let's go out and run. The brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far in the three to meet us. Paul, we're so excited you're coming to Rome. Man, we've been waiting for you. This is a blessing. This is great. At that point, they did not then say, Paul, so now let's turn around with you and go back to Turkey. What they said is, Paul, that's where you're headed. This is where the trajectory is going. Man, we're going to escort. We've met you, but we've met you with a purpose of walking with you to where your final destination is. Meeting in Scripture... Meeting in the culture is never somebody's coming that way, I come here, somebody's coming from there to there, so I'm going to come here to meet them, and then I'm going to return back to them where they came from. That is never what the word meet means. It's not. What the word meet means is somebody's coming from there, going there, and so I'm going to come out to meet them, to then accompany them on the final leg of their journey to where they're planning to be. Make sense? So, probably when it talks in First Thess about meeting Jesus in the air, every other use in Scripture and every use in that culture would not convey then going with Jesus back to where he just came from. It would convey Jesus is coming down, we're going to meet him halfway, And then, man, we're going to come in victory and celebration with a king who's coming to town to fix everybody, and we're going to walk in and come and escort him there with us. So, what does all that mean? I don't know. (laughs) I do know. This is what it means. 1 Thessalonians, last point, 
4.13. Might, but it might not, support the idea that Jesus' return is in two stages, one of which involves rapturing Christians to heaven before the wrath of the tribulation. First Thess 4, it may, it, I, the prior uses of meat and the cultural context, this may be a standalone of First Thessalonians 4. And it may be talking, it could be talking about that Jesus comes down, he pulls Christians up with him, we all go back up for a period of time and then come back at some later place. Or it could mean Jesus is on a one-way, Jesus is on, a, on the express lane. And Jesus is descending from heaven to earth and he's not planning on making a U-turn. And we jump in halfway and we say, Jesus, we are so glad. We want to meet you. And we're going to come with you in this final leg of the journey as a procession of triumph and ceremony of the victorious king who is coming. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, might but might not support the idea that Jesus' return is in two stages, one of which involves rapturing Christians to heaven before the wrath of the tribulation. I can't tell you with certainty, but that's okay. That's okay. So let's talk about what we do know. We do know that Christians will never experience God's wrath during the tribulation. We do know from the text that Jesus is going to return to earth a second time. We do know that Jesus' return will be visible. We do know that under the perspective we're taking, Jesus' return to earth will be after the tribulation. Is he going to come halfway down before the tribulation? I don't know. But I do know that he's coming to earth after the tribulation, and then he's going to set up an amazing kingdom where everything's going to be great, and there's not going to be any more tears or death or crying or suffering at the end of the day. And what we do know is that 1 Thessalonians 4.13 might, but might not, support this idea of a two-stage going up to heaven. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up here. I debated what to do about this because I know, well, I don't know. Some of you have studied this for long periods. And you're like, bro, there's two passages that you're dodging. I'm not. I'm not talking about it because you can't talk about everything anytime you talk about something. Some of you may be thinking about, well, what about the deal where Jesus says, in my house there's many mansions, I don't leave him, I'm going to come back and take you there. Yes, and I'm happy to talk about you after, that does not necessarily explicitly state a rapture. And then others of you might be saying, wait, what about the passage in Scripture that talks like the book left behind about one person's in a farm and then all of a sudden the other person's gone and one's been left behind? Yes, it does say that. But read that passage carefully. Do you know who you want to be in that passage? You want to be the person who's left behind. Because the people who are taken are the people who are taken in judgment. In that passage, it's not talking about necessarily rapture. It's talking about people who are taken away in judgment and the people who are left behind because they have a relationship with Jesus and they aren't. Happy to talk to you more about that. Not trying to dodge anything. Um, but let's just kind of wrap this up. Because some of you right now are frustrated and you're thinking to yourself, Peter, all I wanted you to come and you tell me what to think. You did, right? That is what a good cult leader does. It's true. Do you know what a good cult leader does? This is... Look, I told you with 100% accuracy what the text says. It's now your opportunity to continue to think about it, to study it, and to come to a conviction that you hold loosely, if you want to, about what flowchart or may not flowchart be correct. The reason I can't give it to you with certainty is because, first thing is this, we need to be okay with what God has revealed to us and how he has revealed it to us. We need to be okay with that. If God wanted to, he could have made this a textbook. And on this page, on page one, instead of saying revelation, it would have said end times. And there could have been paragraphs with great specificity about how everything is going to happen in a textbook fashion. He chose not to do that. He chose to reveal some things with explicitness, like the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And then he chose other times to use literary techniques that doesn't give us textbook certainty. And I think sometimes some of us are uncomfortable with the tension of the unknown. None of us can fully explain the Trinity. We, we, can, we can come up with an orthodox definition. We can believe it to be true, but try to understand and explain that. It's, it's, it's a mystery. 
We can't fully explain the tension between predestination and free will. There is some mystery. And God has provided to us every single thing we need to know, but God has not provided to us everything that we could know. And as Christians, we need to be comfortable with that. We need to, second thought is this, that remember, no matter what happens and how it happens, the song that we sang before the sermon started, Hymn of Heaven, is the tremendous hope that you as a Christian can have. No matter how it happens or when it happens, you as a Christian will be in the presence of a Father who loves you for all of eternity. This story of our lives is a speck on this immense canvas of eternity. And you have hope, confident hope, that no matter how it happens or what flowchart is right, you will be in the presence with God for all eternity and nothing can shake that. And we need to trust that God will do what is best. We need to trust that whatever flowchart ends up happening, God's going to do what's best. We need to trust that at the end of the story, God's working it out as is best, and you need to trust in your story today. God will do what is best. We need to be okay with the way that God has revealed truth to us and what he hasn't revealed, and sometimes be comfortable with mystery and the unknown instead of looking for dogmatic certainty about things which God hasn't certainly told us about. We need to remember... Then, however it happens and whatever happens, as a Christian, you can be with God and will be with God for all of eternity. And we need to trust that at the end of the story and in your story today, God will do and God is doing what is best. He is. He is. So, Next week, we're into the tribulation. No more rapture stuff. We're going to unpack it. Uh, but I'm grateful for you coming. I'm grateful for what God's teaching us. I do think that uh, this is a meaningful series and will continue to be so because we're learning about hope and we're learning about God, and I'm grateful that I'm on the journey with you. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to worship, and then we got great classes for adults. Love for you to come. Kids have this type of time. I encourage you to give us another hour of your day here in community because it will help you and your family grow as a disciple. Father, uh, I trust you. I trust you. I believe you are sovereign. I believe you are good. For those of us who are followers of you, we believe that you are our father. We know that a loving father, when a child is hungry, doesn't give him a rock, but gives him food. We know that there's mystery in life that we can't understand. But Father, we know you're trustworthy. And I pray as we continue to think about what is yet to come when we don't know all the answers, we will fall upon what we do know. And it's who you are and what you are. I pray today, Father, for many of us in this room who are at crossroads or decisions points or curveballs where we just don't know what you're doing or why you're doing it or when you're doing it that you will bring your promises back to our hearts, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that neither death nor life nor powers nor principalities nor things to come will ever be able to separate us from the love of you that is in Christ Jesus, that you promise that if we are not anxious, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, present our requests to you with thanksgiving that your peace, which passes all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ. You tell us that you are our shepherd and we shall not want. Father, I pray that the known promises of you for some of us will be a steady foundation that we need to take the next step and to process what's out there tomorrow and to continue to live lives that bring honor and glory to your name in the name of Jesus. Father, we praise you. We glorify you. We worship you for who you are. And uh, now, Lord, hear our last song as an offering of praise and thanksgiving and celebration.
to your power and your wonder. I pray this in the name of our King who is coming, Jesus. Amen.